Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to your downtown Guelph friends. There are lots of groups and organizations in Guelph that are dedicated to helping the poor, the homeless, and the disenfranchised, but there are maybe only one or two that are doing that work without the formal or financial backing of governments, nonprofits, or institutions. One of them is Edward Pickersgill and his bench, and the other is your downtown Guelph friends who may be the inheritors of Pickersgill's DIY outreach to battle local poverty. Having said that, your downtown Guelph friends are now formalizing their efforts in a very modern way. They're crowdfunding through Patreon to create a sustainable flow of funding. So what makes this group of young people so dedicated? Working with your friends is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. So if you go to the Facebook page for your downtown Guelph friends, they describe themselves in very neutral and general terms. We are a group of different people coming together downtown to support those in our community and various organizations with the same goal. That's a quote. While it tells you how your downtown Guelph friends works, it doesn't really tell you what it does, and it doesn't tell you everything it does. The group helps supply meals to people in need downtown, and it helps get them essentials like socks or toothbrushes. It helps raise awareness about the needs of people struggling with economic disparity in Guelph, and perhaps most importantly, they offer friendship. Your downtown Guelph friends is not just a name, it's a state of being. It's also worth noting that your downtown Guelph friends is youth-driven. Their volunteers come from all walks of life, but the people behind the organization and its management are on the young side. Kate Nixon, who is the spokesperson and one of the founders of the group, was already an experienced high school activist, but she heard the call to do more than just raise awareness. She teamed up with other like-minded young people and started bringing sandwiches to the bench, filling a need on a day of the week when the other formal aid agencies weren't providing a meal for people in need. Your downtown Guelph friends quickly established itself as not just a helping hand for people in Guelph living in poverty, but an advocate for them too. Nixon delegated to council on the need for affordable housing in the middle of the controversy around using 106 Beaumont for such a need. So, what is driving Nixon and her fellow friends? That's one of the things we get to the bottom of on this week's Guelph Politicast. Kate Nixon and her colleague Jamie Gibson will join us this week to talk about the origins of your downtown Guelph friends, all the things that they do, and how they're different from the more formal agencies and nonprofits that help people downtown. We will also talk about their efforts to destigmatize the people they're assisting, how stigma can lead to criminalization, and how their work has challenged their own preconceived notions over the years. And finally, we will discuss how the pandemic has changed issues around poverty, how they're trying to answer the increase in needs through crowdfunding, and what kind of help they're looking for right this very minute. So I caught up with Kate Nixon and Jamie Gibson earlier this week via Zoom. All right. So Kate Nixon and Jamie Gibson, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Well, to get things started, why don't uh, you guys talk about how your downtown Guelph friends started, uh, like the origin story of, of your group and the work you do? Yeah, I mean... It started essentially out of a need for food security in Guelph. So um, when I graduated high school, I was seeing all of the, I had more time to kind of see what the needs. I know I knew there was an immense need in Guelph because I was volunteering at Hope House and stuff like that before. But when I graduated, I could really sort of examine where there were gaps within services in Guelph and like what where there was a lack of community support. And on Fridays, there weren't any meals programs occurring. So um, a bunch of us got together and we were like, how can we address this need in our community? And we were thinking of sandwiches and we we're like, let's just make a bunch of sandwiches and then people can eat and take some to go. So it started off by everybody meeting on Fridays and making over a hundred sandwiches for people downtown every Friday. And then we would bring it to a spot downtown and distribute the sandwiches. And then we had a good network going and we decided to see what else we could distribute. 
and where like where other needs were not being met and things like coats and mitts and different hygiene products were other things that people were really needing and we had the sort of like bodies to do that distribution work and we were like okay let's just rally it within our community so we reached out to our community and people donated to us and we had sleeping bags and coats socks shoes clothes hiding products anything you could think of people were were willing to give to us and we went downtown and distributed it every Friday mm-hmm. and we started like a whole little program every Friday and that was going really strong for a few years until it reached the point where we saw another need pop up and that was for food programming on Sundays and we we recognized that the amount of food that would be needed on Sundays would be a little bit more than just sandwiches because there was it was like not no programming at all there weren't any cafes open for folks to drop in it was like very very desolate on Sundays so we so we decided to do a whole hot meal and we received funding from the union steelworkers to do that and other supports in the community and every Sunday for over a year now we've been providing a hot meal additionally to our Friday program on Sundays so yeah so our programming and the stuff we've done has come out of a basic analysis of what is it that our community needs the most and how can we do that and we are all pretty much you know it's very it's youth-led and we're all volunteers and we just you know donate our time and it's all work from our hearts and we show up and we just do what we can twice a week Who's the oldest person in the group, if I can ask? <laughs> How old are we talking? <laughs> um, so it ranges from like the age, I think like the age ages range from um, roughly 19 years old to 60, hmm, 63, 64, mm. I think the oldest person is. Mm-hmm. But are like talk- the initiatives are very youth-led. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I just want, I'll just put in, are we talking uh, <laughs> uh, amongst the patrons or amongst the people in the organization? I meant the organization, uh, oh, because okay. Kate said it was youth-led, and so I was curious uh, where the ceiling was for youth. <laughs> <laughs> youth-driven, but, like, we will, like, volunteers are accepted from any, like... Sure, age. yeah. Yeah, any anyone can volunteer, but it, you know, I, I I just was curious because uh, I guess reasons. Anyway, <laughs> Jamie, maybe <laughs> you can go into some uh, detail about sort of how uh, the, the group kind of works um, in terms of like how decisions are made. Like, how do you guys decide where to direct your resources? Um, I, I guess you know how how does all all that work. Um, well, I mean, kind of as, as Kate alluded to, it's mostly just kind of, um, uh, it, 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 it's, I think in terms of res- allocation to resources, it's largely, uh, uh, listening to the patrons, listening to what it is they might need or what we might be able to offer them. If you're not entirely sure, they can't put their finger on what it is they need, mm. um, you know, so it, you know, of course, it varies on a seasonal basis, of course. Um, uh, but I, I think that's kind of an area that uh, Kate uh, is most in tuned with because, or attuned to rather, um, because uh, the, I, I see Kate as someone who has incredible capacity uh, for kind of sussing out what it is that, that people might need and being you know, really having an ear to the ground in terms of what people are, are, uh, are asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose there's a, a bit of uh, resources that, that I kind of uh, think about that, that go towards organizational capacity unto itself, you know, kind of the banal kind of, uh, you know, kind of things related to uh, keeping up like, you know, a Patreon account, trying to open up a, accounts with credit unions and stuff like that but that's very 
you know, those are uh, minimal kind of uh, expenses compared to what is devoted to actually, you know, uh, distributed to people on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So I guess the big question is, what is it that you guys do that, like the fo- the more formal, I guess, social agencies don't? You know, what do you guys bring to the table in terms of, I mean, whether it's your approach, whether it's filling the gaps in services, but how do you guys set yourself apart from like some places like Hope House or Chalmers or the Guelph Food Bank? Um, you know, what? I, I guess what makes you guys uh, unique? Yeah, I think we can both answer that. Um, I think we probably both have different perspectives on it um, and gain different things out of that. Um, I think personally what I feel like makes us a bit different from other folks is and like this is we really appreciate the work that other folks do right like hope house drop in they're all doing extraordinary work in the community like where there are there are friends on the ground here you know doing the doing very similar work and we're all we all want the same thing for our communities but i think um the difference between us and them is that we are you know we're kind of like on the premise of solidarity not charity you know like this is very much grassroots and it's it's like we're in we're immersed in it with folks um you know we're trying to really be in solidarity with the people that we're servicing and be present for them in some of like the, the darkest times like we you know sunday's a very desolate day mm-hmm. and it's a very you know that there's a lot of supports that aren't available on that day and we kind of like see the consequences of that so we're there on some of people's worst days and we're, we're present during those times when it, it's like, when it may seem very bleak. Um, and we also have the capacity because, you know, funding and being understaffed and stuff is a very real issue for a lot of orgs right now, especially with a lot of the cuts that are occurring mm. within like, you know, at a provincial level. So we can kind of sit there and listen a little bit more because we have the the capacity to do it we can sit there and listen and be present where people are trying to you know meet the bare minimums maybe in some foundations because of the fact that they're understaffed and underfunded so we actually have the ability to sit and listen and sort of be present and that's because like that's just because of the level of like they were doing a lot of work and so, so are we, but like our work differs a little bit. And I know Jamie can probably add to this a little bit better than me, but I would probably say that. I, yeah. Kate did mention kind of the idea kind of, yeah, the, the, I think one of the core ethics of YDGF, as far as I know it uh, is yes, this idea of solidarity, not charity and taking that distinction very seriously, you know, a large component of uh our, our reason for being is, uh, you know, to be uh, advocates and to hopefully be conduits through which to amplify the voices of people who are often ignored. Um, so there, yeah, so there, yeah, I, I, activism and questioning the uh, conditions that such people find themselves in and, uh, uh, putting putting uh, those systems which incubate those conditions on trial is a, is a massive uh, reason for for being. I think, um, but yeah, also just I think you know I I, I think a lot I, I I think a lot about kind of the um, people like like who are really inspiring to me are people like Dorothy Day. Um, who uh, was one of the founders of the Catholics worker, Catholic worker uh, movements and the Catholic worker houses, which are, um, I think, also a really admirable kind of model, perhaps, that we can kind of lean towards. Uh, and she, she said uh, she was a, a Christian. And, uh, she always said, you know, the Bible is basically, or the gospel has uh, essentially... Um, has uh, removed removed from us, I suppose. I'm I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> has removed from us 
the ability to uh, dis distinguish between the deserving and the undeserving poor. There is mm. no more of that. And I think that is kind of what YDGF is, is about. Kate, uh, to, to pick up on the whole solidarity in, uh, instead of charity, I, I think Jamie hit on kind of the other way to look at that, which is you don't separate between deserving and undeserving poor, right? That it, it, it's a matter of when you talk about solidarity instead of charity, solidarity is we are helping, we are going in and, and we are helping to lift you up as opposed to charity, which comes across almost like a chore. We are, you know, we're told that it's not okay to have poor people. So I guess we'll help you out. And, right. and I think that's kind of the distinction you're trying to make. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm a social work student and um, we learn about the historical sort of legacy of a lot of organizations and social work and stuff and sort of the roots and beliefs that occurred before us of what it was to help people. And I think in the past, there was really an element of there were people who were in these circumstances because they brought it upon themselves or, um, you know, that things had to be this way and that people had control over their, over their circumstances. There was that belief. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that still lives today in some charities and within some institutions for sure. And there's, a, there's some element of judgment with us. We don't ask any questions. We don't need ID. We don't, you know, we don't need any of that. We just come, come as you are. We will not question your existence here and you can come and you can get a meal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're here, you know, if you're here and you're not sober or you are here and you know, you're taking from us. We're not going to question that because mm -hmm. we don't believe it's our place. Like our community is our responsibility and those who seek supports from us will receive them regardless of any of any circumstances. And we don't believe that, you know, people are in in unfavorable circumstances because they brought that upon themselves. We see it as a systemic issue and and as a community issue. And it is our responsibility to be there. Like we feel we feel that as community members, we have to look out for one another. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like our, our duty and our responsibility to look out for our humans, our fellow humans, right? And there's a sort of belief that we don't, yeah, you don't owe anybody anything, right? Like people kind of carry that belief with them, but we, we believe the opposite. We think that we do owe people. We owe them these, a, these, the decency to access food and companionship and belonging. We owe them, we owe them basically our best our best attempt at providing the bare minimum right and that's kind of like the premise that we operate on and the belief system that we operate on we really work to get away from that historical element that still I think is very much present in our community today mm -hmm. of judgment and preconceived notions of people's circumstances and yeah so I, I would say that that's kind of our core belief mm -hmm. Do you deal with people who feel that, you know, they can't get help because they're stigmatized, that they perhaps feel that, um, you know, reaching out, whether it's to like a formal service agency or a government agency that, you know, they just can't because of the way they feel they will be judged. Is there that is how how right how ripe is that barrier? Uh, of stigma yeah that's definitely really prevalent within our um, community whether it be because you are not sober and you are carrying you know illicit substances quote-unquote illicit substances or you do not have an id and maybe mm. you are someone who's undocumented mm -hmm. or maybe not you just don't have an id um you don't meet the criteria from some places to receive help like maybe you are neurodivergent and you have you know you have outbursts or behaviors that are not favorable in the eyes of some of some service providers so we see all sorts of things like that taking place where people 
are kicked out and banned from certain places because of these these certain factors and we don't have that like people come to us and they're not sober we had someone who you know had an opioid poisoning mm. and you know we administered naloxone but if that took place at another organization they might have been banned because of using right and we know that that's a really real thing that's occurring in our community and people are missing out on services because of it so people do come to us knowing that there aren't these these uh, rules in place or these you know these notions that you cannot be coming to us if you're in a certain condition because we're like we don't feel that that's our place and who's to say that somebody shouldn't be able to access a warm meal because they cannot sober up to do that right that's it's really wrong and it's basing this this sort of thought that people aren't deserving of the bare minimum if they don't meet a certain criteria and that's that's so wrong and we don't we don't have anything like that we just ask that people come and that they're just they're just kind to one another right i mean of course of course if someone's harming another person or creating you know, like I want to do, I want to say that, like, we're not going to let someone harm someone else in front of us or something like that. That's right. like basically all we ask, right? That you just, you come and you come as you are. We're not, you know, we're not looking to, to tell you how to, how to come and how to be, how to present, right? It's not our place. Everyone in our community is our responsibility to look after regardless of any, of any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Then I guess looking at it from the other side, there has been a lot of discussion in the last few years i mean especially around the opioid crisis about trying to destigmatize people not being as judgy of people and how they ended up in um and jamie's back by the way um <laughs> and and how they um ended up in, in in their circumstances whatever those circumstances may be are you seeing that i guess sort of being an intermediary between um the people that you help and the people in the rest of the community, um, are you seeing less stigma coming from that side of things? Well, speaking to whether or not uh, whether or not there there is any kind of movement uh, on 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 the kind of wider uh, idea of people in our community being more accepting of uh, those who, yeah, who might be under the influence or who might not be in the uh, an optimal state while accessing services. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much the needle is moving. Mm. Um, I, I would hope that the more that this ethic is practiced and crucially uh, as to the role of uh, shows like this, the more that it is actually talked about, the more that I would hope people would, you know, open their hearts uh, to the, to the idea and to, um, you know, really uh, unsheath, so to speak. And, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's about recognizing humanity in the most uh, devastated of situations. And, you know, I, I, one thing that I, I, I read somewhere recently was, you know, uh, about the uh, addiction and mm. uh, it, it, it kind of the intersection between addiction and the prison system uh, and the criminalization of substances more generally. is the, it's, it's, it's an absurd fact that if you are dependent on a substance, that you will be criminalized and potentially even incarcerated because that very thing, incarceration, is going to escalate every single factor in your life that led you to addiction in the first place. Addiction mm-hmm. is itself a, a state of despair. It is where you're, everything around you is so overwhelming and uh, so uh, you know uh, impossible to cope with that you very much, yes, numb yourself and detach. And if you're going to throw people into <laughs> situations that are purposefully created to be overwhelming Mm. uh and and uh uh hostile such as prison then of course all of the things and even after they they leave their 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 sentence is complete 
it, it, those, those are those, those traumas and those walls and those, you know, ultimately defense mechanisms, which constitute addiction are only going to get worse. Um, and I think that, you know, you can apply that wider idea to, to just even the work of, yes, uh, helping people in your community directly. Uh, if, if you're going to turn someone away because they're in a state of despair, that despair is only going to get worse. Mm. And you, you can't, you know, you can't loiter that over people. I'm really against the, the notion of being holier than thou. Even when people aren't doing it uh, explicitly, you know, they think that they're, uh, they're, that it's tough love or I don't know what exactly, how they go about rationalizing it. But mm. uh, it, it is something that I think is all ultimately counterintuitive and plays entirely into the punitive instinct that is uh, existent within the wider carceral society within which we find ourselves today. Mm. Punitive instinct. Uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And of course, jail too is, is or, or being sentenced to a prison sentence is an additional stigma as well. It ends up being an additional stigma. It is, and it's just it goes around and around and around in a circle, you know. Because uh, if you have a criminal record, it's going to be harder to to find housing. It's going to be harder to find employment and so forth. And it's just, uh, yes, it is. It is some. It is. It is very, very much the prison. I think more than anything. And I know we're getting a bit off topic now, but. <laughs> that creates sort of a caste, a secular caste in uh, the Western world in, in this in this country. Mm-hmm. No, it's 100% relevant to us because we also see that the folks who are stuck in these, in these circumstances, oftentimes it's a consequence of being through the incarceration system, right? Like it doesn't allow people to advance and people in our communities like you know nobody wants to be stuck in a position where they can't access the bare the bare necessities right but oftentimes because of things like the incarceration system over policing the way that we don't have um, a lot of financial supports and stuff people are stuck in these positions and they can't even get themselves out of it even if they wanted to the people oftentimes have this preconceived notion that it's a lack of effort on the individual's part but it's a systemic issue and it's the fact that people don't even have access to advance even if they want to. And I think that not even having that opportunity is just, it's so sad. Right. And when we look at addictions um, and just kind of what, what addiction is oftentimes it's, it's like, you're not even just treating addiction, right? Like you have, there's anxiety, depression, PTSD, Mm. you know, undiagnosed head trauma and things like that, that come with it. And, this is someone's best attempt to cope with with these elements when they don't have other options and they don't have these support systems in, in place. And like we have to look at it, right? Because some people like their their whole life and who they are as a person is just stigmatized. And they're they're only being put into this category of their addictions, but they're people, they were people before they developed an addiction. They're people when they're managing it, and they will be people after they've recovered. Mm-hmm. And like in, you know, there's like a really large dehumanization happening in our communities of addiction. And it's really sad to think that too, because like a quick statistic that is often echoed, like in our communities is that people who survive six or more at, uh, at risk childhood experiences are 46 times more likely to be active drug users than people who report no adverse childhood experiences. So when we're looking at why someone is choosing to self-medicate, we can look at the fact that a lot of these folks are victims of untreated trauma and and child abuse or, you know, or childhood traumatic childhood experiences. And I, I think as well, when we look at stigmatization and just how much it affects lives, the stigma that plays out in the criminalization of drug use if someone's going, like we see this here in Guelph, I see it when I'm downtown. Someone goes to access harm reduction services downtown and there are cops on bikes circling around and they stop a person who's trying to access these services and they search them and arrest them. Mm. They're going to be less willing to go out right. and access those services because they're going to be criminalized for the fact that they have these substances on them and they're seeking out help so they don't die while they use 
and then they're met with that response. So that's going to discourage people from seeking out these supports because why would I go and risk being arrested and being thrown in prison when I can just use by myself and not have that risk? And then that's when we see people have opioid poisonings alone and unfortunately die. So mm-hmm. like stigma and criminalization, it is just, it is a death sentence to have this occur in our community. It is so much deeper than just, you know, like just these preconceived notions of people. It, it is killing people and it is causing deaths in our community. Here in Guelph, we see it constantly. So yeah, I, like it, stigma and criminalization in the incarceration system is having dramatic and devastating effects within the people we service. And some of those yeah, things aren't, I'm, sorry, I, I was just going to say, before I let you jump back in, Jamie, that mm-hmm. some of these things are not even conscious because if you're a police officer, you're trained to look for behavior that is different from the norm. And of course, if you are uh, someone who is using substances or if you are someone who's battling a mental health issue, you are automatically acting different from the norm. So that makes you sort of predeterminate to be targeted by police officers so just by the fact of their training. Sorry, Jamie, you mm-hmm. wanted to add something too. No, no, I think that point is well taken. I, uh, a very illuminating, uh, Adam. Um, and, I, and I would say that that um, resonates with also kind of what I've observed over the last few months that I've been uh, really in, in touch with YDGF. But I, I just wanted to say, uh, building on Kate's comments, uh, to kind of tie it back to YDGF is that I think there's a lot of a lot of people who walk the walk and talk the talk. And, you know, we have our, you know, I think to me, very dismal bell let's talk day every year. And there's all this, you know, there's all this fanfare around destigmatization and whatever. But and also, I think uh, as a side note, destigmatization is ultimately completely uh, debased and meaningless if it does not come with decriminalization or in the direct for the direct purpose of decriminalization because then what does it matter at all there's no stigma but you're still going to get thrown into a prison who cares right mm. um and you can't really erase stigma without erasing the larger uh systemic uh, uh, uh preconditioning factors or whatever but um but for me ydgf is is i i i think i've tried and failed and tried and failed a lot in my life um, to kind of live up to the, the ideals of like destigmatization or whatever. Uh, and I've wrestled with kind of the bourgeois uh, uh, articulation of that, which is completely, yeah, debased and disconnected from any meaningful praxis. And to me, uh, ideas like mutual aid, which is a spurious concept, but like I, th- I think a very worthy and important one, and ideas uh, that, uh, or, you know, or, or practicable uh, uh, things such as the YDGF uh, are important in actually realizing uh, what decent stigmatization would actually look like. And what it actually looks like is not just saying abstractly that you support it or whatever, uh, or talking about your own mental health, but it's actually about leaning into not individualistic expression, but leaning into responsibility for others. Mm. And that, which is the fabric of community. And what that will look like is yes, going and forming relationships and providing for people who are in desperate need and who are in uh, desperate situations and, and, and need a, a someone to lean on basically. Right. And, Mm. uh, I think if there's any level of sentimentality that is worth uh, internalizing in, or, or making a part of your actual political worldview, it's that kind of a sentimentality, and not just this abstract PR uh, thing that we, we usually see. Right. You guys sort of take it to the next level in that um, you're not just you know collecting donations. You are. Uh, the group is sort of well-named. It's, you know, your downtown Guelph friends. We're not just giving you a service. We are here to be a friend as well. Yes. Yeah. That was our goal. Yeah. So how has the pandemic sort of changed things? How has it changed the way you deliver your service? How has it changed the lives of, of the people that you helped? Like, 
how, how are the how have they felt the effects of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, like, I think Jamie can also add to this too, but like, for us, I mean, we still went out. It didn't change anything in our services. In fact, it increased our, our needs because, you know, we had, it really increased our numbers. That's for sure. Um, we have more people coming to see us. And I don't know if that is because of job loss or what that may be, or just like, services shutting down in other communities and people seeking it out here. I don't know the exact reasoning behind why our numbers have gone up, but we have seen a significant increase in the numbers of people we are servicing. And we have seen sort of the consequences of what this pandemic has been like for people, right? Because there's an element of isolation that a lot of people are experiencing. You know, people who are housed are having an immense time like difficult time trying to navigate through this pandemic imagine being unhoused or imagine managing a dependency or managing your mental health crises like there are so many things like things that are enhanced now and we're in the middle of like you know a lot of racial tensions and mm. things that are just so much more enhanced than they were before like they were always present and they were they were always happening, but like now you're managing a worldwide pandemic on top of all of these things. So it's just incredibly enhanced. So people are, are coming a lot more frequently. They're coming in higher numbers and our need, our needs continue to grow and grow and grow. And we're trying to meet those needs, right? So that like for, for us, it's trying to constantly meet the needs. And sometimes, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing people come and they're just, they're starving. Mm. There's nothing available and they're just so hungry and they, they just had nowhere to go for a few days and they're, they're so hungry and they come to us. Like before we were, you know, we weren't seeing people quite as, I guess in such harsh circumstances, we weren't seeing it reach this point of where people were not eating for days or people were coming to us and they were, they like were in a really bad state mm. but now we're seeing people that are coming to us and they are having a mental health crisis that is just so prolonged and enhanced and they're or like they're having issues with their supply being tainted and there there's like a whole realm of issues within that that world of opioids and stuff that are occurring that's only that's been enhanced since this pandemic has started um, are people just lacking the, um, the community that they were able to seek prior to this pandemic because of things like cafes being open like, and drop-ins and things like that mm. that are no longer operating because of the pandemic. So we're seeing the consequences of all these things and we're trying to meet greater needs that have been presented before us. And we're trying to do it from a grassroots perspective. I mean, we don't have, we don't have national funding coming in from the government or you know, we don't have any kind of like bureaucracy occurring. So we're just trying to do this. We're students and, <laughs> you know, we're like, we have jobs and we're trying our best to meet these needs in circumstances in which we've never been in before. Mm. So, yeah, I know Jamie can ask that for sure, but like, that's kind of like my, my perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, just to add, I think to the, the, the latter point that Kate was making a moment ago. Uh, and, I, and I'm kind of, uh, again, I have a very particular kind of world worldview and, and influences. <laughs> so I will say this as sort of a uh, revolutionary of sorts, but I really believe in the uh, value of constructing dual power. Uh, that is constructing uh, uh, entities for social utility which are entirely autonomous from the state mm. uh and i i think i think like you know i think it's difficult um because i i think part of the value of what we have built so far and where it can grow from here uh it's kind of murky but we're figuring it out is that we yeah like kate said we're not really getting any federal funding or provincial funding or anything like that uh, we are trying, I think, on some level to avoid those pitfalls and to avoid uh, 
the ways in which being uh, being uh, uh, tied up with the bourgeois state is going to uh, it may you know uh, uh, prevent us from living out the true vision uh, of of a, a a sort of dual power oriented mutual aid society. Mm. Uh, I think that in the ideal sense, we would much rather try to get our funding, uh, yes, from unions as we have in the past, or perhaps churches, but uh, more than anything from uh, directly from community members themselves. I think that would be the, the ideal. And uh, as we kind of move into kind of a new paradigm with our, our funding structure right now, we are really kind of exploring those avenues and trying to take seriously this, this idea of, um, of being autonomous from this, the state, which uh, again is the entity which creates so much of the deprivation and the desperate and the desperation that we see on a week to week basis. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's an important uh, part of it. It should not be understated. Right. You guys don't believe in government, but you do believe in Patreon. So uh, what what prompted that move? Um, I, I guess sort of like to for- it really seems like you're kind of formalizing things in, in a way that um, uh, I guess taking it to the next level, I, I guess, you know, what was the thinking behind going to a kind of a, a, a crowdsource funding model for the group? Well, um, I, I, I was kind of the one who spearheaded that. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, just for the reasons that I, I, I just kind of stated uh, prior, like, uh, I, I, you know, we, we actually are, I think, quite fortunate uh, to have built a great deal of um, a, a great deal of goodwill, I think, uh, in, in the community. And there's a lot of people who support us. And, uh, you know, if that is uh, through the form of donations or volunteering or, you know, trying to even just spread the word, simple stuff like that. Um, and I, I think kind of my realization was, you know, uh, we, could be, we could be fully independent if we could get, you know, even a, a even even a fraction of of these people to donate like five bucks a month or something Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the patreon is very new uh it's 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 a a very kind of an embryonic uh uh, pursuit at this time but it is something that i think we're going to hopefully make a larger part of our funding structure um again for the reasons i just stated Uh, Mm -hmm. okay do you anything you wanted to add to that no i think that that is exactly how we feel and just the fact that we may not be able to rely on these these um places like the government or these these um bureaucracies or anything like that but we we do believe we can rely on our communities and just seeking that support from our community to take care of one another so that because like it's i feel like it's very it's very isolating to go through life sometimes thinking you know you you don't know if you're going to have support if Mm. you're in a circumstance right if you're in a certain circumstance and I think people fear that and it would be nice to be in a community where you could say even if the worst were to happen and I was stuck in a really bad circumstance I know I have a community I can turn to Mm -hmm. right and I like I I mean that's a dream that I think we all have that we would like to see for our communities, just knowing that we have each other's back and, you know, we look out for one another and may that be through monetary donations or material supports. Like that's one way of, of showing up for one another. Well, then maybe to bring this uh, home, uh, aside from the Patreon, which uh, people can donate to, uh, are there any specific needs or wants that you, uh, you, you need assistance with right now like any specific donations of items or uh specific donations of even time like what kind of volunteers are are you looking for at the moment uh, what kind of help do you guys need yeah i think that thank you for asking i we have a our sunday programming is going to need a lot of support in the coming years so of course monetary donations would really would really help uh we service 
100 people approximately a week on Sundays. So we would really appreciate monetary donations or if people could help us supply meals every Sunday, would that would be really beneficial. We, we need support with things like juice boxes and snacks. We could always use winter coats, hats, mitts. Of course, things like that are like dependent on the season. When the summer comes around, things like flip-flops, hats, sunglasses. I mean, like it varies on the season. We always need those kinds of things. Um, socks, because a lot of our folks that do come see us are unhoused and have to bear the elements. And if anyone knows what it's like trekking through winter with wet socks, it's not pleasant. So socks are always good. Hand warmers, like we were previously discussing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were talking about how awful it is to have cold hands and feet. And it it's, can be painful, right? I mean, it can be horrible to navigate through winter, not having things like that. Um, and like, Jamie, jump in if you can think of anything else. I mean, hygiene products, deodorants, um, menstrual products, harm reduction products like condoms and things like that. Um, yeah, I don't know, Jamie, if you can think of anything else at the top of your head. I mean, we need anything and everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, just kind of any of the, the bare necessities, really, that you need to live is they're, they're all things that the folks who visit us need, you know. So, um, yeah, that list could go on and on and on. But um, to, to answer your, your question, Adam, about... Um, about volunteers and and you know what kind of people we're looking for in volunteers we don't really have a a, a mold or anything really but what i will say <laughs> for people who are uh interested in the work that we we do and what we've we've talked about today is uh i, I can share share my experience you know i've been d uh, volunteering with idgf just under a year and um it has been incredibly uh, enlightening to me uh, because you know the people who I have observed who are who have the greatest capacity for cooperation and for helping each other mutual aid and for uh, just just compassion in general are actually the patrons themselves it's not us going in there uh, and and teaching people how to be good to each other or, or mm. whatever, or setting an example or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually, uh, and, and I think on some level, it's, it's almost an intuitive thing. Like if you have nothing in the material sense and you are in a desperate situation and you're surrounded by people in the similar kinds of conditions, you are going to rely on one another. And you're going to build those skills and, and uh, strengthen them, of course. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to fetishize poverty or fetishize uh, desperation or anything like that. I think that's kind of uh, a common pitfall. Mm. But I do, I cannot uh, dismiss or even downplay the fact that, that if anything... Uh, you know, I, I, a lot of these patrons, especially the elders, because um, I'm just a, a young guy, I'm 24, uh, actually uh, are, I see as role models and people who influence me and in, in their capacity to care for uh, other people. Um, and so I guess just going to the, the, the aspect of volunteering is that if, if, uh, <laughs> if you feel kind of detached in this kind of weird late stage capitalism that we live in as many youth, I think in particular do. Um, and you're open to the idea of uh, letting go of some of that unsheathing and, uh, and, and being uh, amongst uh, this, uh, these folk and doing this work. Uh, you, you know, you, it's, it's an interesting thing. You're, helping people, but they're helping you. And I think at mm -hmm. the end of the day, that is the highest ideal or the highest aspiration you can really have for any kind of community work, any kind of mutual aid. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's just incredibly rewarding. And I would really um, strongly encourage people to, 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 you know, see what it's about and to open themselves to that, 
those kinds of possibilities. Well, we will leave that with an opening uh, for anyone who wants to maybe step through. But uh, Jamie Gibson and Kate Nixon, thank you so much for all your time and uh, all your hard work. It's appreciated. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And once again, that was Kate Nixon and Jamie Gibson. To learn more about your downtown Guelph friends, to follow their efforts, or to connect with them about volunteering or donation opportunities, you can look them up on Facebook at Downtown Guelph Folks or on Instagram at your downtown Guelph friends. And you can also donate to their Patreon at patreon.com slash YDGF. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next time. And until then, we will see you next time.